No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jeremy sits down with the new Ole Miss head football coach, Lane Kiffin. We've also won enough at different places and coached enough great players that now we can sell that versus selling, okay, this is what it's going to be like. You know, we can show them, hey, we've done this before with, you know, multiple Heisman Trophy winners or Blitnikoff winners, you know, and so it's a lot easier now. Plus, Ivan Mazel explains why Joe Burrow's terrific season is not the greatest of all time. The only reason I would hesitate to put him in the Barry Sanders echelon is I think we are in the midst of stat inflation. It's an incredible season, but the game has changed so markedly. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the new football head coach at Ole Miss. Used to be the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. Tennessee Volunteers, and USC Trojans. We'll be speaking with Lane Kiffin. But first, a monumental week in baseball, and not in the good sense. We've seen the general manager and manager of the Houston Astros lose their jobs, the manager of the New York Mets, the manager of the Boston Red Sox out as well. The Astros cheating scandal continuing to mushroom and to break it down, we're joined by our friend and colleague, the 13-year Major League veteran, Eduardo Perez. Eduardo, thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's a, it's a pleasure just under these circumstances where Major League Baseball is going right now with their players. It's a tough one. What, what, are, what is it like right now as someone so deeply connected to the game, a second-generation Major Leaguer, uh, a former player, uh, a former coach, um, to see the game uh, hit by these shockwaves, what's it like? Uh, it's difficult, but it is something that I know that the game has been able to overcome a lot of things in the past. If it was a steroid scandal um, over a few decades ago, and then you continue to to look at the gambling uh, issues in the past, and, and uh, right now, Major League Baseball, with Rob Manfred, he's been able to come down really hard on the penalties and a lot of people are thinking well he could have done more but within the realms of what he had the five million dollars to ownership Mm -hmm. the draft picks first second rounders of the next upcoming years and then also uh suspending two very popular managers and a general manager that has really made the game different by the way although no suspension yet for alex cora we're just expecting that exactly no no suspension yet it's it's expected but alex cora and carlos beltran both having uh to step down as managers uh is is a definite blow right now to the game but at the same time it is part of cleaning up the game that is necessary we're speaking with espn baseball analyst and major league veteran eduardo perez and eduardo the details, right? I mean, everybody in baseball knew this report was coming, and they suspected that the results would reflect poorly on the Astros. But hearing those details, the elaborateness of the scheme, the depths of the subterfuge here, what was your reaction? I was blown away. I was really blown away because I always thought, and I used technology to make me better 
as a player, studying the pitcher's tendencies, and then being able to make an educated guess when I went up there at the plate. And sometimes I got burned, sometimes I did not. Uh, but to be able to not only have a develop a scheme in today's game where there are so many players that become free agents, if it's by serving the six years or just by getting DFA designated for assignment, all of a sudden you end up on a different team and having so many players together come up with this, um, that is uh, an unbelievable scheme that really uh, just blew me away. Uh, the, the way that technology was being used um, to give away the signs to the, to the player, if it's from second base, if it was from the trash can. And it just, it just showed that this game has to be policed and you cannot assume that everyone is playing by the rules at all times. And this was the Astros. Um, this is, we talk about world championships 2017. We talk about the Red Sox in 2018, but, we also have to talk about the players, the victims, the pitchers that faced these hitters that thought they were making the perfect pitch, and all of a sudden that perfect pitch ended up being taken, and now you're forced to throw another one, and that's the one that gets hit. Those players also got affected by it. Arbitration cases are now being affected by it. There are so many different elements to this, so many different layers of people, teams, organizations, value of organizations that really have been hit hard by this or were taken advantage by the scheme. And clearly that is the case. That's not disputable. Um, and if we accept that and we do, what does that mean for the future of an Alex Cora, an AJ Hinch, uh, a Carlos Beltran in this game, a Jeff Luna? Do they deserve another chance? My answer is yes, because I believe everyone deserves another chance. I believe we become better. We are better from, from learning from our, from learning from our mistakes, no matter how big they are, especially in the game of baseball. And, and, um, some people also just, they thought, okay, am I, where is that line? Well, the line is right there in the, it's in the rules. It's in the rules and it was mandated, especially on August of 2017 when the commissioner said, I'm going to come down hard on the general managers and the managers. I'm going to hold them accountable, the leaders, and he held them accountable. Uh, and he used the, the, uh, the Houston Astros as a team to use them as an example. And I believe this was not just one team that was doing it. I think this was an epidemic going on in Major League Baseball. And right now, if I'm wearing that uniform, I'm going to make sure that that my teammates, that my players, if I'm a manager, are the ones that are playing by the rules because the way they came down on them, it's not worth losing your love, passion, and and, and livelihood over it. We're speaking to Eduardo Perez, the ESPN baseball analyst, 13-year Major League veteran, and you know, I, you know, there's so many different ways yeah. to think about this, so many different questions. Um, but among them for me, Eduardo, um, you know, there were, there had to be dozens of people who knew what was going on, literally dozens of people, maybe 40 or 50. Um, but until Mike Fires talks to the athletic in November 2019, it seemed like they'd get away with it. Um, <laughs> how, how is that possible? It's possible because there's always been a myth in the game that what happens, and it's sort of like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. Uh, but, but as I mentioned earlier, 
because of all the free agencies and players and trades and players moving from organization to organization, you always hear a player that gets traded or becomes a free agent in another organization. Watch out for this team. If you hear something, they're on it. They're not missing a beat. This, uh, they're taking advantage of every little move, or they'll say, this guy's really good at, at picking up pitches from the pitcher, so make sure you hide the glove well. You don't move it because he's good at it. And and all, all of a sudden, that reputation continues to, to move forward and forward until someone comes out, and in this case, it was Mike Fires who had the courage to put his name out there mm-hmm. and say, okay, enough is enough. I took advantage of this system in 2017. I have a ring to prove it. I have a bonus money to prove it. But right now, in his own conscience, he could not move forward with it, and he knew that his team was being affected by it. At that point, it was the Oakland Athletics, and he went public with it. And he put his name behind it. And for that, you have to respect it. And Major League Baseball paid attention. They looked into it. And this is where where we are right now. And I think we're just at the beginning of what we will find out are many other things that are going on with other organizations. So buckle up. This is just the beginning. Monumental week. And Eduardo Perez says just the beginning. Eduardo, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. All right, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Monday night in New Orleans, it was really more of a coronation than a championship. The LSU Tigers capping a perfect season with an absolute annihilation of Clemson, the defending champion, two championships in the last three years. LSU, as I said, 15-0, and setting an FBS record for points scored. A remarkable season in so many respects. The quarterback, Joe Burrow, winning the Heisman Trophy, acclaimed universally as the best player in the game. Ed Orgeron, who had been in the SEC as a head coach more than a decade ago at Ole Miss with this kind of redemption. Uh, So many elements to the story. And we wanted to discuss it all with our old friend, the great college football writer, Sage Savant. Ivan Mazel. Ivan, thank you for joining us. Uh, Sage and Savant. Wow, that's good. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if there's really a distinction, but I like, I, you know, whenever you have one of those lists, you always want three. You don't want to yeah. stop it yeah. too. And, and, uh, so yeah, but I think both apply in this situation. Ivan is, uh, is on his way home from New Orleans. Uh, he survived what must have been, uh, a ridiculous party. I mean, I can't even fathom what the celebration was like, uh, or the prelude for that matter. LSU, essentially a home game in the Superdome. What was the atmosphere like? Well, if I had to pick one city, Jeremy, to be the permanent host of the college football mm-hmm. playoff championship game, it would be New Orleans. They know how to do it. Uh, everything's walkable. And you get a stick of butter with every entree, so it, it, it just works <laughs> and, a, out. and a loaf of French bread. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, it and and as you said, having LSU there and, and Clemson, you know, it was drivable for both teams. So there was orange and purple, you know, all weekend, everywhere you looked, and that's what you want. And and the atmosphere in the dome Monday night was. Uh, vibrant. Uh, you know, there was noise on every play, at least as long as Clemson was in the game, and, and loud noise. I mean, it was a rocking house. 
Kind of a perfect scenario. We're speaking with Ivan Mazel, except for the fact, of course, you know, and this is problematic for announcers and writers and especially headline writers. We still do have headlines. Um, that both teams have the same name. I mean, that was the only thing that diminished, I thought, the, the total package, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, yeah, I, I, that was my early prediction for the game is that there would be a lot of bad leads referring to Tigers and Death Valley as if, you know, that was uh, really clever. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, William you just, Blake you getting quoted, had, you know, randomly, all that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, you just had to stick with LSU and Clemson. You couldn't, you know, wrote, you couldn't, you know, hop from one, you know, from team to nickname and back. That's all. So, so I'd have to say, you know, the big discussion, uh, or among the discussions now being had is whether this team, and there's always proximity bias, is the greatest college football team ever. If they have just fashioned the greatest season ever. And, you know, too often, um, you know, th- there is that proximity bias and whatever we've seen recently, uh, um, gets the most votes in these kinds of competitions. But you are someone with a rare appreciation and knowledge of the history of the game going back now 150 years. How strong or how weak is the argument to be made on LSU's behalf? Well, I think the only thing we're missing is perspective, as you pointed out. Uh, you know, my immediate reaction is to go to the two best teams that I've seen since I started covering college football, and that was the 95 uh, Nebraska team and the 01 Miami team. Uh, but I think, you know, LSU belongs certainly in the same breath with those two, you know, because uh, they were rarely challenged over the course of the season. And I, I thought the game Monday night was terrific and that they got punched in the mouth early and they had every opportunity to wilt on the big stage, playing a team that knew how to play on the big stage. And they didn't, they just came right back and, and dominated the last two and a half quarters of a game. I, I think the conventional wisdom Ivan right for the last, 30 years has been that Barry Sanders Heisman winning season Oklahoma State was as great as you could be as a college player. Um, it is what Joe Burrow did this season with the 60 touchdown passes, um, leading his team to a 15 and 0 season and the national title. Um, he's obviously in the conversation now. Well, what's your historian? Put on your historian hat again for us and tell us where does Joe Burrow rank now? The only reason I would hesitate to put him in the Barry Sanders echelon is I think we are in the midst of stat inflation, and you know I, I think if we measure Joe Burrow by the traditional standards, it's an incredible season, but. You know, the game has changed so markedly, and which was a point I was trying to make in my story. This is a 21st century football, and it's different. And uh, we don't, it's still too early to kind of figure out what the new normal is. But he has certainly shattered uh, all manner of, of expectation in terms of what we think of as a great quarterback. He's far beyond that. We just don't know what's coming and whether uh, there are going to be more seasons that are 
if not exactly like this, then similar to it. It's a fair point. The standards have changed. It's it's not a six to four uh, Princeton Rutgers world anymore. I should say Rutgers Princeton. In, in all fairness to the Scarlet Knights, we're speaking with Ivan Mazel in the aftermath of the LSU triumph in the national championship game. What was it? I kind of lost track. 42-25 to win their first title since 2007. And, and, and if you allow me on Burrow again, if, if it's not statistically the greatest season ever, if it's not in terms of pure performance, uh, relative to the way the game is played now, the greatest, the story's got to be one of the greats of all time though. Um, uh, where he came from, how he landed here, uh, overcoming the doubts um, and becoming a folk hero in the process. This is this is the kind of uh, gold uh, you spin when you write these kinds of stories, Ivan. Yes, it's got every element. You know, he he, he was uh, he could did not win the job at Ohio State, and he, thanks to the new rules, uh, was able to try to win it somewhere else. And, and did. And, you know, there's a bit of a redemption story there. There's a bit of redemption story for his coach at Orgeron. Uh, so they are a nice pair and, and will go down in history as a nice pair. But, uh, you know, to your, to your point, I mean, the, what's fascinating, and this is, this is, uh, has nothing to do with stat inflation. It's just the skills we saw. Uh, and we didn't see them last year. He needed Joe Brady to come in with this offense, but the anticipation and the the ability to get rid of the ball so quickly is unlike anything I've seen in college football that I can remember. I mean, it, it, I compared him in my story to Drew Brees and not just because of the proximity. I mean, Clemson is a good defense and they couldn't, get near him because he gets rid of the ball so quickly and so accurately. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Earlier in the show, we were speaking about LSU's victory in the national championship game. Their head coach, Ed Orgeron, winning his first national title. Years ago, he was the head coach at Ole Miss. Now... Ole Miss has a new head coach, and he's one of the most controversial and colorful figures on the landscape of college football. His name, Lane Kiffin, and he used to be Ed Orgeron's boss at Tennessee and then at USC. Now he is his successor at Ole Miss, a few coaches removed, and everyone who cares about Ole Miss football teams is fired up to have Lane Kiffin the former Oakland Raiders, the former Tennessee Volunteers, and the former USC Trojans head coach now in Oxford. A few weeks ago, I had a chance to speak with Lane Kiffin. You've been on the job for basically a week. What's it been like? Uh, it's been crazy. You know, the press conference, or first off, you know, flying here um, after winning the conference championship, getting on a plane, flying here, saying bye to those players, um, you know, landing in there's thousand people on the tarmac. Uh, was was very different, you know, and so it was awesome to see the energy and they were the excitement, and you know, and then we tried to hire some coaches and tried to sign some players at the same time. So moving really fast, but being smart how we do it, not too fast, you know. And that's maybe ten years ago, I probably would have moved faster on things, and 
I call that the Saban factor, you know, from being around him. He moves very slow on decisions, and how he does them, and learning that from him, you know, so that you don't make snap decisions. So how do you manage that now? Because, you know, there is urgency, but as you say, you have to be deliberative as well. Um, you know, just doing the best thing for the program. And so, uh, like this early signing, you know, we didn't sign a lot of kids because you know, we wanted to get some time to develop relationships and, and find the best players around the country instead of just, you know, we're, we're going to sign these kids so it looks good on signing day. You know, and, and, you know, that's probably one of those things I would have done before, too, taking some kids that have stars and, you know, four stars and that stuff so the fans get all excited. But that's not the best thing for the program. You're one of the biggest names in college football. You've been around the game at its highest level for most of your life. To get this opportunity to return to the SEC at the age of 44, what does it mean to you? It's exciting, um, you know, having been here before as a head coach and an assistant, to be around it, you know, the passion, the fan base, so we're excited. Would you care to elaborate? You know, I just kind of felt like that was missing. You know, we were doing great things at FAU, but there was just that missing of being at the highest level. What What about um, coming back to uh, the conference? You haven't been here since, what, 17, I guess, uh, 16, the 16 season with Alabama. Uh, what's it going to be like competing against one of your mentors? Um, it'll be awesome. Um, obviously, he's the pinnacle and the go to put what's going on, and so we got a long ways to go to get to that level. This particular job here at Ole Miss, um, what, what are the challenges here? Well, I think, you know, there's some really good young players here, um, you know, but really getting the fan base behind us and getting some more quality players in here. So, you know, this is the SEC, and it's the SEC West, so... You know, you, you got to have great players. I don't care what coaches you hire, you know, what schemes you run. You have to have great players to win in this conference over time. Is is Ole Miss equipped uh, institutionally to compete with the big dogs in the conference? Yeah, I believe we are, and, and it's happened before. I was at Alabama for three years, and we only lost two conference games, and both were to Ole Miss. And so I saw that happen, so I knew that, you know, there was a way to do it here. For you, um, your career, you became a head coach in the NFL at the age of 31. Um, you were the youngest major college coach in the country at Tennessee. Uh, you know, now you're 44. What, what is, you know, taking this job now, looking back, what are the things you learned in your first stint as a head coach in the SEC that you're applying now? Well, I think that, you know, um, how competitive that you need to be, you know, every day. And, and going with Coach Saban, you saw that, you know, he recruits every day. And so, you know, it's not just the X's and O's, you know. And so I think that happens all around the country. But I think, you know, there's more X and O maybe in, in other conferences. And then recruiting, we're here it's recruiting then X's and O's. That first year, that year at Tennessee, I should say, was tumultuous. And you came in on fire, looking back now, right? Um the way you approach things then, how does that inform the way you do things now? Um, I think very differently, like we already discussed. You know, I go slower now um, and, and think things through more of it. You know, I came from Pete Carroll, who was more of a snap decision maker, you know, and then going with Coach Saban, who's way over here on the other side about, you know, taking a long time to, to figure things out. And so um, balancing that now, I think I make a lot, you know, a lot better decisions. When you look back at some of the things you did at Tennessee, what do you think about them now? I mean, I just laugh, you know, like, you know, it's what, you know, people always say, you know, if you could tell yourself, you know, 10 years ago, what would you tell yourself? And I'd tell myself to slow down and shut up sometimes. 
What do, what do you think that guy, that 32-year-old Lane Kiffin, was trying to achieve? Well, I, I mean, it wasn't just by accident. There was a plan there. You know, Tennessee had been down for a few years, and, and the recruiting wasn't the same. Florida with Coach Meyer and Coach Saban in Alabama, you know, games weren't really close. And so we felt that we needed to install some confidence in the players and the fan base by, you know, kind of coming across that way. And now, as you say, your approach has been altered. Yeah, I don't think you, you need to do that um, because I think we've also won enough at different places and, and coached enough great players that now we can sell that versus selling, okay, this is what it's going to be like. You know, we can show them, hey, we've done this before with, you know, multiple Heisman Trophy winners or Blitnikoff winners, you know, and so it's a lot easier now. What, what are the most important ways you think you have evolved as a coach over the last 10, 12 years? I, I think I do a lot better with player relationships. I think that I was, you know, probably at USC, Tennessee, especially USC, I was more the offensive coordinator that was the head coach, you know, and so I um, really didn't have, you know, quality relationships probably with defensive players, you know, and, and outside of quarterbacks and receivers. And so um, just looking back and talking to guys over the years, they felt that. And so, you know, now I spend a lot more time with the players, understand the players, and, and a lot more as a life coach instead of just a XO coach that, all right, I can get you to the NFL and teach you everything that you need to know to get you drafted high. Now there's a lot better balance. Looking back, as much as you knew about the game and um, the way you were steeped in it, were there ways in which those jobs, the Raiders, Tennessee, USC, you were just too young for them? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, you know, I just think that you don't, you don't know until you know. And so most people get their head jobs the other way around. You know, they get a small school head job. They make some mistakes on the fly. Nobody really knows it because they're not the media attention on it. So I was making those mistakes on the national stage instead of the other way around. So then by the time they get to, you know, look at Coach Saban's on what? It's like fifth head coaching job. You know, Coach Meyer, look how many he had. Well, they obviously got better. Um, and I'm sure they would tell you they were a lot, lot different than they were 10 years before that, you know, at their first head job. So... Um, I, th- I think that that everything that happens, you know, you know, it's an obstacle, and so you learn from it. And you know, you got fired at USC, and that was horrible. And I thought that was the end of the world at the time. Well, now I look at it and say, hey, if that didn't happen, I would have never got a chance to go with Nick Saban to Alabama, never a chance to go to FAU and, and do that there. So, um, obstacles the way. What well, what did the three years you spent? in South Florida at FAU, what, what kind of an impact has that had on you? Uh, it was awesome. Um, it was very different. You know, those kids don't all think they're going to the NFL. Where Everywhere else they've been, everything was about the NFL. And so the kids, you know, they hadn't won. They'd won three games, three games, three games. So the seniors never won more than three games. We won 11-3, and three, won the conference championship, you know, <clears throat> won every conference game. And so those kids, I, I got to – those locker rooms, even though they weren't like the Iron Bowl or national championships, in a way they were actually more special. Why? Because you just saw it because the kids were like, we couldn't do this without you, you know, versus the other places when you were winning, it was like, okay, well, we expect to do this. So, you know, it was, it was just neat to see how appreciative they were. And also because for most of them it was the culmination of their athletic careers, not the beginning. Exactly. And so the, uh, I think – you feel like they actually care more because, you know, this is it. I came here and this is it. I'm done versus this being a stepping stone for the next level. Have you had a chance to speak to Nick Saban since you took the job? I have not. Um, he doesn't text, so I can't do that. Um, 
but I, I will actually. Um, I was actually going to do it. We we're just scrambling with stuff, and I was just going to reach out to him and just just remind him how much I appreciate him because I wouldn't be here today without him. How are you guys now? Uh, we're good. I mean, um, you know, we we had a great run. You know, we had three years, three SEC championships, three SEC offensive players of the year, and a national championship. And and when I left there, we were on a like twenty six game winning streak. So did some good things. But was was the actual ending though? Was it awkward? Yeah, it wasn't perfect. Um, but those situations are hard sometimes, you know. And so, um, you know, I was trying to do that and you know try to go fast and assemble a staff and recruit, you know, at the same time. And so, um, it, it was very difficult. And so, I think as we sat down, you know, he just felt like you know it'd be better, you know, if I just focused on that. There are a lot of prominent coaches in college football and pro football. You're one of the guys, though, with one of the biggest profiles. Everybody knows about Lane Kiffin. Everybody likes to talk about Lane Kiffin. You're always in the spotlight, even if you're down in Boca Raton at FAU. Why do you think you're a lightning rod? I don't know that. I mean, Pat Hayden used to call it the Kiffin factor. Like, you know, if you do something and it's good and they're like, hey, you're going to be on the front of the sports center, you know. If you do something bad, all right, it's going to get blown up times 100. So, um it can it can be used really good. I don't know why it happens. I don't know this polarizing figure or whatever, but you don't agree with that. I, I don't really know why it is. You but know, it, I'm it, just it, a coach, and I don't think I'm that abnormal, or you know. So I think I'm more of a, just a normal person that happens to be a coach and act like a normal person, like Twitter, for instance. You know, and I think that blows some people's mind away. I, I don't know why. You you excite people. You you, you get people excited. You get them angry. Somehow, you're you're kind of trigger for people in a way. Is that something you can use to your advantage? Sure, I think that attention, you know, just on our program, you know, and so there were five kids that had already gone in the portal and transferred to leave here that were already leaving. You know, four of them, without even meeting them, came and said, "Can we come back?" And I think that's that attention of you know that national attention and and the places that we've been and you know you know the different things we've done and. Last six years, we've been part of programs that won five five conference championships, you know, with five different quarterbacks. So the players, I think that really helps with the players. I mean, he's in the six one just just this morning is coming back. So six guys went in, six are all coming back without really even having to recruit them. When you got fired at USC, and after the way in which you left Tennessee, after what happened with the Raiders, and now here we are, six years later, you're back on top. How much does this feel like? Redemption. Well, it doesn't yet. Winning will feel like that. Having a job to me doesn't mean anything. You know, that doesn't mean you made it. Made it is when you're winning championships and, and your team's winning for a long period of time. So when we get to that point, that's when we'll have made it. What was the toughest period for you? I, I, I think you talked about between getting fired at USC and going to Alabama. What, what was the toughest period for you? That time, because it was early in the year, we were three and two, so. You know, it's not like getting fired at the end of the year and you just get a job. You know, you got a couple months there. you got no idea what you're going to do, and you've never been watching football on TV, you know, and not coaching it. So, and when you get fired, it's very, and coaches, I've talked to other coaches about it, it's very difficult because you feel like everyone knows you got fired. You know, most people, when they get fired, it's not in the front of the LA Times, you know, or on Sports Center. So, you know, they get fired, they go find another job. You know, when you get fired as a football coach at a major program, like, you feel like everywhere you go. I mean, I remember going bowling with the kids, 
you know, like LA Live. And I was like, I couldn't even feel normal because I just felt like everyone's like, oh, there's the coach who got fired, you know. And it was, it's not a very comfortable feeling. There were a lot of people when you got fired at USC who seemed to take pleasure in it for some reason, who who just weren't fans of yours and thought somehow he's getting his comeuppance. How did that make you feel? That doesn't bother me. Um, uh, again, I don't know why that is. Um, I don't know. You know. I didn't feel like I was this villain in coaching, you know, that especially at USC. Maybe I said some things at Tennessee, but I didn't do any of that at USC because we didn't need to. You know, historic program that had just, you know, just come off of Coach Carroll's great run, so we didn't need to do that stuff. So I, I, don't, I don't really know why that was. And, and there's this whole, you know, that we didn't do a good job there. That's the part that bothers me is that, you know, that we failed. Well, we went 28 and 15 with 30 less scholarships, two-year bowl ban, probation the entire time we were there, and you lose 30 scholarships. You know, came out that day and said, all right, this is basically the death penalty. And, you know, get ready for, you know, 40,000 people in the Coliseum and two win seasons and stuff like that. You know, you go 28 and 15 and get fired. And no one seems to talk about what we did with so little players, you know, so that, that part bothered me. I mean, it seems like you don't get enough credit for the successes that you have had. Your successes kind of get lost in some of the controversies. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, again, I don't know why that is exactly, but um, I think that happens a lot um, and totally happened with, you know, with USC, you know, like that we, you know, screwed the program up and, and didn't coach well. And that's the one place of the places that that really bothered me because I know we could have won national championships there. I was part of Coach Carroll when we played in three straight, you know, and won 34 straight games and three highs winners, all that. So I saw how he did it. And, you know, keeping the the Southern California players home and nationally recruiting. So I was, when we were winning those games, I was the offense coordinator and recruiting coordinator at the same time. So I knew how to do it. We just were handcuffed. Again, 30 scholarships and... And right away when we get there, two-year bowl ban. So those guys coming in are saying, wait, why are we going to go there if we can't play in bowls for two years? And we still signed the number one recruiting class in the country with all that going on. So that's the part that bothers me because I knew the formula, how to do it. And, you know, we just weren't on the same playing field. And also those 30 kids, not just aren't you getting them, they're going to the teams you're playing. You think you've changed people's minds about you? Um, I do feel like that's happened. And... I just feel like coming here, had this happen a few years ago, it would have been very mixed. You know, you would have had some excitement, maybe Ole Miss, but you've been getting, you know, killed nationally and all that stuff. And I feel like, you know, I'm sure it's not 100%, but I feel like it's a lot, a lot more positive than it would have been a few years ago. And I think that came from really the FAU of, of going on the field as a head coach because people say, oh, he's a good coordinator, but he can't head coach. You know, and so, and turning a program completely around and, you know, winning two conference championships in three years, you know, and some more that had, had never won a conference championship in that in that conference. So I think that, that obviously helped. The evolution of Lane Kiffin, uh, a source of constant fascination for sports fans in this country, how much of it do you think in terms of perception is about your social media presence and the, the personality you show on social media? I, I do that for a reason. I do that for the attention to the school and to help us recruit. You know, I go into... I go into a home, almost every home I go into, either the kid or a parent or all of them say, hey, I've never met you, but I feel like I have. 
I love your Twitter. You're a great follow. So that's a, that's a big deal. You know, I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but we actually get interest from kids based off of that because they're saying, hey, you know, I really like what he puts on there. I really like how he is. I want to play for someone like that. I don't want to play for the coach that just gives coach speak and does everything like, you know, you read in a book, this is how you coach and this is how to deal with the media. I know I, I never read that book. <laughs> that was Ole Miss head coach Lane Kiffin. Kiffin's already making waves in his new job. Shortly after our interview, he hired DJ Durkin as an assistant. Durkin used to be the head coach at Maryland himself, but he was fired after one of his players, Jordan McNair, suffered heat stroke during a team workout and later died. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.